Good evening, brothers and sisters. Uh, I'm Lei. Uh, I am a PhD student at UW. Uh, my research topic is computer vision. Uh, I will read Romans chapter uh, 3, verse 21 to 26 in Mandarin. Firstly, I want to teach you one word in Mandarin. Jesus in Mandarin, Yesu, 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 yes. Yeah, good. <laughs> okay. Dan Rujin, Shenda Yi, Zai Lufa Yi, Yijin, Xianming, Chulai, Yo Lufa, Her Xianzi, Wei Zhen, Joshi Shenda Yi, Yin Xing, Yesu Tidu, Gay Yichi, Xiang Xing, the Ren, Bing Mayo, Fen Bie. 因为世人都犯了罪亏缺了神的荣耀如今却蒙神的恩典因基督耶稣的救赎就白白的称义神设立耶稣的救赎就白白的称义神设立耶稣的救赎就白白的称义神设立耶稣的救赎就白白的称义
And so, our Father, we do pray that in your mercy you will please so speak to us this night that our lives will be transformed for your sake and glory. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. In the late 19th century, there was a great student revival in the UK in which hundreds were saved on the university campuses and involved in evangelism both here and overseas. It was really a form of revival, a revival that gave rise to the National Student Christian Movement, or the SCM, as it was called. And this SCM was like the AFES, the national body that we are affiliated to as the Uni Bible Group. The SCM had a slogan, what it called the watchword. And this watchword was as follows. The evangelization of the world in our generation. The evangelization of the world in our generation. And you know, by 1933, 3,300 members of the SCM had gone onto the mission field. 3,300. However, in its heart to reach the world, the SCM became less concerned with who was involved and started to become more inclusive, so much so that it was even suggested that Unitarians, that is, people who don't believe in the Trinity, where God is Father, Son, and Spirit. They didn't believe that. But they suggested that Unitarians could be involved in the evangelization of the world. But it was still the biggest national student Christian movement of its time. In 1919, which is 100 years ago, the SEM approached the... Wait for it, Cambridge Intercollegiate Christian Union. Isn't it a great name? Uni Bible Group is so much easier, isn't it? <laughs> the Cambridge Intercollegiate Christian Union, which if you get the acronym of that, spells kick you. Isn't that great? <laughs> the kick you. It's better than the oik you, uh, which is the Oxford Intercollegiate Christian Union. Pig sounding, isn't it? So fitting for Oxford, but that's another story. <laughs> The SCM approached the Kikyu to affiliate with them. And here's a quote from a biography. It said, Many and urgent representations were made that the Christian union of the Kikyu should link up and become a kind of devotional branch of the SCM. And to settle the matter, a meeting of delegates from two committees met. The student president, and I think it was his vice president, but certainly two members of the committee, their names were, wait for it, Norman Grubb and D.T. Dick. Right? Grubb and Dick met together, representing the Kikyu, together with the head of the SCM. And after an hour's conversation, which got us nowhere, quote, reported Grubb, one direct and vital question was put. Does the SCM consider the atoning blood of Jesus Christ as the central point of their message? Hear that? 
Does the SEM consider the atoning blood of Jesus Christ as the central point of their message? And the answer given was, no. Not as central, although it is given a place in our teaching. Not central. And that answer settled the matter, for we explained to them, says Grubb, at once that the atoning blood was so much the heart of our message that we could never join with a movement which gave it a lesser place. And you know, although the SEM had wonderful gospel roots, at some point they pushed the cross to the periphery of their doctrine and they sought to be so inclusive at the expense of the atonement. And today the SEM hardly exists on our campuses, whereas the Kikyu continues strong with the OIQ. It continues strong. And, you know, we have our gospel roots very much from the Kikyu here in the what we know as the AFES in Australia. Now, if the AFES ever approached you and asked you as a uni Bible group you know, to be a part of them, and you asked the very same question, and if the answer is still the same, or as the same as what the SEM said, no, the cross is not central, make sure you disaffiliate from the AFES, won't you? I'm saying that as the AFES national director. <laughs> if I don't hold to the cross as central, then I should be kicked out of my job. But so should your student president, or your committee, or your staff, or your whoever. If the cross is not central to their doctrine, We've really, really lost the mark and lost our way. But why is the centrality of the cross worth dividing fellowship over? Because the cross is central to the plans of God, let alone the central to the plans of a movement. And if we push it to the periphery, why we lose what is the foundation of our salvation. The centrality of the cross is a gospel issue. And tonight we're going to examine how the cross is central to God's plan. And to set the scene, let's turn to 1 Peter. We're going to go um, back and forth tonight rather than left to right. So please uh, follow along if you can. If it's hard for you to get to places quickly, uh, don't worry. Your salvation is not dependent on that. But it is helpful to find the text if you can, so that you can see that what I'm saying comes from the pages of Scripture and not out of my own head. But take the um, reference down if you're finding it hard, or certainly go to the contents page where you can find where these books of the Bible are. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 10. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 10 is where we want to begin tonight. God says to the pen of the Apostle Peter, verse 10 of 1 Peter 1, concerning this salvation, the prophets, he's referring to the Old Testament prophets, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours, searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. Did you pick up what he said? He says, God outlined his plan of salvation through the prophets of the Old Testament. But note, who was in the prophets of the Old Testament? The Spirit of Christ. The Spirit of Christ? 
Christ had not walked the earth when the Old Testament prophets were prophesying. Yet his spirit, the spirit, can I say, of the pre-incarnate, the spirit of the unascended Jesus, was actually in the Old Testament prophets, enabling them to prophesy about the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. In other words, to prophesy about the cross, the centrality of the cross. For in the gospel of Jesus' life, death and resurrection, we see the fulfillment of these Old Testament prophets prophesying. But who enabled them to prophesy but the Spirit of Christ when Christ Jesus had not even walked the earth at that time? Does that blow your brain apart? Well, it blows mine. I don't know about yours. But that's what's going on here, right? And that's for another talk, another time, as to how the spirit of the unascended Christ could be in existence doing his thing. But the big point here is that this news that the prophets were prophesying that are fulfilled in Jesus, this news is so amazing, so astounding, that even angels long to look into this news. Right? The angels, it says there. It was revealed to them, note verse 12, it was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, these prophets, but you, you the readers of this letter, in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news, the gospel to you, by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. We know better than the angels. We're better off than the angels. That's how privileged we are. But we cannot understand how amazing this is unless we look at some of these Old Testament prophecies. And tonight I want to look at one particular prophet in the Old Testament and a few Psalms as well. But the Old Testament prophecy I want us to look at is from the book of Habakkuk. Habakkuk. Habakkuk is somewhere between Nahum and Zephaniah which is of no use to you if you don't know anything about the Old Testament. So go to the contents page and have a look where Habakkuk is. It's a little book with three chapters somewhere toward the back. So you've got Micah, if you find Micah, then you'll get to Nahum, and then from Nahum you'll get to Habakkuk. If you go on to Zephaniah, you've got to come back to Habakkuk. So Habakkuk chapter 1, I'll wait for the pages to stop flipping. Go to the contents page if it's hard to find. Habakkuk chapter 1 and verse 1. Habakkuk. Let me tell you a bit about Habakkuk as you still find your way there. Habakkuk was a prophet who prophesied about 640 BC. Remember last night I talked about how the people of Israel were divided into 12 tribes. There were the 10 northern tribes and the two southern tribes. And Habakkuk was a prophet who prophesied to the two southern tribes, to the tribes that became known as Judah. Judah. And this is what we learn about Judah. Habakkuk chapter 1 verse 1. The oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw, verse 2, O Lord, now he complains to God, O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry out to you violence and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity? Why do you look idly at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me, strife and contention Arise. Do you see what he's saying? He's saying, why do you make me see? Why do you make Habakkuk see the iniquity that's going on around about him amongst the people of Judah? 
Because the people of Judah were violent. The people of Judah were people who were bent on destruction and strife and contention that was going arising there. So he's saying, why are you making me look at the people of Judah erupt into such violence? Because they were violent people at that time. And then he goes on to say in verse 4, so the law is paralyzed. Justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. Now, please note, if this is the people of Judah who are violent, then which law is paralyzed? Whose law? Someone shout out to me. God's law. It wasn't human law here. It was God's law that is paralyzed. You see what he's saying? He's actually saying that it's not just any people who are disobeying God's law, but God's own people, and it's God's very law himself, itself. But God appears not to do anything about it, he's saying. He seems deaf to Habakkuk's prayers, deaf to Habakkuk's cry for help. He was either unwilling or unable to help the people of God. God is there, but he was silent, and his silence seems intolerable. You see what Habakkuk's saying? And so Habakkuk is asking, why? Why aren't you doing anything about it, God? Why? And I wonder whether, like Habakkuk, you have asked God the question, why as well? And why are you letting violence thrive, not just in the Middle East, but on every continent, God? Oh, why, God, are you letting governments corruptly hang on to power or political parties compromise principles just to get elected? Why are you doing that, God? Or why are you letting selfishness in nations like Australia erode our relationships, erode our morality, erode our sexuality and ultimately our humanity? Why are you doing that, God? Or why do you let earthquakes and tornadoes and bushfires kill people? Why do you do that, God? Why do you allow accidents and sickness and cancer to rob us of the ones we love. Why? Why, God? If you've never asked why, I suspect it's because you haven't lived life long enough. For those of you who don't know, my beautiful Jeanette is my second wife. She was the prayer, she was the answer to the prayers of my first wife, who died because of cancer. And as she was dying, as she was wasting away, let me assure you, we were asking why. She never smoked, she was fit, she was young, she was healthy, highly capable. She had nothing that should lead to cancer, but cancer robbed her life from us. Why would God do that? But I tell you, I suspect that even though 
I and my children had to undergo such suffering and trial. My suspicion is it's, it's not even remotely close to the, the heartache and pain when a family goes through divorce or violence. And if your family has gone through that, I, I am really, really sorry. Because that is painful. And you might be asking the question as I ask the question, why? Why do you let this happen, Lord? How can you possibly tolerate this, Lord? How can God allow such things? That's what Habakkuk's asking. But God's answer doesn't seem to be all that comforting to Habakkuk. He says in verse 5, God's answer to Habakkuk. Look among the nations and see. Wander and be astounded. For I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. You see what he's saying? God is going to do something about it, but it's, it's unbelievable. You cannot believe what is going to happen. Why? Look at verse 6. For behold, God says, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation who marched through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. God is raising up the Chaldeans. Another name for the Chaldeans is the Babylonians. That's the synonymous name for the Chaldeans, the Babylonians. And we heard last night about the Babylonians. They came in to conquer the Judeans, right? the two southern tribes. But here they haven't come yet. And God is saying that he's raising them up. And this is astounding. This is unbelievable. You see, Israel may have been completely off the rails with their violence and destruction, but Babylon, Babylon was never even on the rails to start off with. Babylon was a completely pagan nation. They had no fear of God. At least Judah did for a time, but Babylon never, ever feared God. And look how they're described here in verse 7 and following. The nation of Babylon, the Chaldeans. They are, verse 7, a dreaded and fearsome Nation, Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle, swift to devour. They all come for violence, all their faces forward. They gather captives like sand. At kings they scoff. At rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress, for they pile up earth and take it. Then they sweep by like the wind and go on. Guilty men whose own might is their God. See, God is raising up the Babylonians to deal with Israel's own violence, and it's astounding, it's unbelievable because these people are so, so mighty that they worship their own strength, their own power, right? Their own might is their God. 
But who wouldn't follow their own strength if they were as strong as the Babylonians? Who wouldn't trust in their own strength if they were as invincible as they were? Like swift horses or leopards and wolves, animals renowned for their speed and aggression, gathering whole nations and their kings like sand, and they're bent on conquest and violence, dreaded and fearful. I'm not sure there is an equivalent today. They sound like an army of orcs in the Lord of the Rings, you know, except it wasn't make-believe. It's more like the Nazis of World War II or ISIS against defenseless people in Syria. One of my daughters is currently in northern Iraq with a group of friends in a church ministry there just for a month. She's coming back in a week's time. And already she's seen all these people groups who had to flee from ISIS. She's 50 kilometers away from Mosul. You know, Mosul is the place where they put the letter N on the tents to work out who the Christians were. The ISIS would come in and basically either decapitate them, rape them, murder them, or unless they actually left before they actually came in. That's how you would feel if you were in Mosul with ISIS coming by. That's the kind of feeling that's coming on here. And this is astounding. It's unexpected because God's answer to Habakkuk's cry of lawlessness and injustice was more lawlessness and more injustice at the hands of an evil empire of terrifying cruelty. It's kind of like the UN asking ISIS to help punish North Korea. You know, it's, it's bizarre. It's unbelievable. It's astonishing. That's why he says, I'm doing something that you won't believe. It's unbelievable. The cure of the Babylonian invasion was worse than the illness of Israel's sin. And Habakkuk is shaken to the core by God's answer. And so for the rest of chapter 1, he basically protests. If you skim read the rest of chapter 1, you'll see him say things like, Oh God, you are holy. In fact, you can't even look upon sin. How can you even look upon the wicked nation of Babylon, let alone use it to punish Israel? Come on, God, you're the Holy One. You're the rock. You're meant to be good. You're meant to be for your people. What's going on, God? I'd love an answer, God. And what is God's answer? Look at chapter 2 of Habakkuk and verse 2. And the Lord answered me, Write this vision. Make it plain on tablets so he may run. Who reads it? For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. You see, there is a vision. A vision that awaits an appointed time. And Habakkuk is to make plain on tablets something that God will reveal. God's justice will come as a revelation. Habakkuk is to write it down on tablets. And he must run with this revelation, herald this revelation. Messengers must herald God's message to all. And the revelation concerning the end will be fulfilled at God's timing. Right? It waits its appointed time. Not our timing, but God's timing. You ever feel impatient with God's timing? 
because his timing isn't our timing. We know his promises and we know that they're to be fulfilled at some point in time, but we can't wait often. We, we want it now. We're such an instant generation these days, aren't we? We want fast computers, fast internet, especially if you're trying to enroll in a tute tonight. We want everything just fast, just I want it there, you know, straight away. We got MBN connected because we were so slow, you know, beforehand. And when it got it connected, we thought this was amazing for about five minutes. And after that, it was just slow, you know, it was just slow. Does that feel that way? I've got a friend who had a coffee that went cold. He put it in the microwave oven, put it for one minute, and went, come on, come on, come on, quick, 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 I need it now, I need it now. One minute. That's us, isn't it? We're, we're the instant generation. When do we want it? Now. What do we want? Everything. When? Now. We want it now. But that's not God's timetable. God works on a different time scale. And at God's appointed time, he will judge rightly. At God's appointed time, he will judge. And he will judge because of the nature of sin. Now, I think in your seminar today, you looked at Genesis chapter 3. Is that right? You looked at Genesis chapter 3? Terrific. And when you looked at Genesis 3, I hope you saw that the gravity of our sin lies not so much in the nature of the sin committed, but in the greatness of the person sinned against. Can I say that again? The gravity of our sin lies not so much in the nature of the sin committed, but in the greatness of the person's sin against. Let me put it another way. What makes sin so sinful is the vertical offense against God. Whereas our horizontal offenses against one another is not what makes sin so sinful. They are simply an expression of the vertical offense against God. It's our hostility against God that makes sin so offensive. For sin is primarily a vertical offense. Our major problem is vertical, not horizontal. Sin is the rebellion against our loving, faithful and righteous God. It is the defiant disobedience of his commands in heart and actions. It is ignoring him as our majestic creator and holy judge. As Adam and Eve sought to eat the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, it wasn't so much the picking of the fruit that was, it was offensive. Why? Because of the offense against God in wanting to determine good and evil for themselves. It was an act of pride because they wanted to to determine it for themselves. They wanted to be like God. They wanted to rely on themselves, on their own strength. That's what pride is in the end, isn't it? That's the ugliness of our pride. And that's exactly what the Babylonians are like, aren't they? Look at verse 4 of chapter 2. Describing the Babylonians metaphorically. He says, behold, verse 4, his, the Babylonians, soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him. Or verse 5, moreover, wine is a traitor, an arrogant man. 
who is never at rest. His greed is as wide as Sheol, like death, he is never enough. He gathers for himself all nations and collects as his own all peoples. You see, he is proud, he is puffed up. We, not be, we may not be a part of the Babylonian army today. But are we not people who also rely on our own strength in so many ways? Rely on our own abilities? C.S. Lewis, a great Irish writer who wrote the Chronicles of Narnia, he wrote a number of essays in one of the essays, he wrote this sentence. If a man thinks he is not conceited, that's the word for proud. If a man thinks he is not conceited or proud, he is very conceited indeed. Hands up if you've heard of Muhammad Ali. Muhammad Ali, okay, great majority of you. Muhammad Ali was the world heavyweight champion boxer for a good number of years, an amazing man, but <laughs> he used to say, I'm not conceited, I'm just convinced. He also once said to an airline hostess who asked him to put his seatbelt on, and he replied to the hostess on the airlines, Superman don't need no seatbelt. To which she also replied very quickly, well, Superman don't need no aeroplane either. Right? <laughs> She was very quick. And I just wonder whether we're ever subtly tempted to think that we are better off than others. Not quite in Muhammad Ali fashion, but in a you know, kind of sophisticated fashion. I just think inside my head that, well, I go to a better church. I'm doing a better course. Arts. <laughs> I'm, I'm doing... I go to a better youth group. I, I have better theology. I, I'm just better off. I dress better off. And I, I've got a better situation than you or something. Just subtly, maybe. I don't know of any way you could possibly think that. But my guess is you, you think, oh, no, that's not really me. That's not really me. Well, let, let me go the other side of the coin, which is exactly the same thing in terms of pride. See, on the other hand, pride can manifest in a false sense of insecurity, can't it? Now, insecurity is a complex phenomenon, right? And the psychologists now are going wild, aren't you? You're going to think, oh, what's Richard going to say? Is this going to get me a distinction or not? You know, do I think this is right or not? Let me, let me suggest to you, oh, psychologist friends, don't you think it's possible that maybe one of the reasons we feel insecure is that we are constantly comparing ourselves to others? Oh, I feel so insecure. Because look at the other person over there. They've got so many friends. I haven't got any friends like that. I just find it so hard to enter into conversation. That person just gets in a conversation, boom, they've got all these relationships. I just find it so hard. I wish I was like this person. Or, oh, that, person, that, that person's engaged. and I haven't even got a, a boyfriend yet. I just wish I was in their position. Or... Oh, they've, got, they've got such a wonderful family and, and my family isn't like that. They just seem to have life all sorted and, and my life isn't sorted like that. It just makes you feel all depressed. 
because you want to be like them. You want to have their situation, and you're constantly comparing yourselves to them. And, and what you constantly say is, oh, I'm no good at this. I'm not good. I'm not like so-and-so. I'm not like so-and-so. I'm not like so-and-so. And in the end, you start to feel really down on yourself, and you kind of think, well, I'm not proud. I'm just down on myself. Well, in the end, can you see how that actually is pride? Why is it pride? Because in the end, this sense of insecurity can be pride dressed up as insecurity because what you would really like is to be like that person and thought well of. Because you still want to be thought well of. See, a truly humble person doesn't think about themselves or their situation truly humble person is just so caught up in the interests of others, they don't even think about their situation. Uh, they might, but they're not going to keep on comparing themselves to others because they're nothing to compare. They just rejoice. They just lean in into the joy of the other. They lean in to whatever the needs of the other person is instead of constantly thinking, oh, these are my needs. I wish my needs were met like your needs were met. There's a guy named Richard Sibbs, a Puritan pastor from years ago who wrote there are two dangerous rocks which our natures are prone to dash upon security and pride security and pride and insecurity in the end is really another way of talking about pride if it's insecurity that arises from a comparison to other people all the time But can I say that's all symptomatic of our vertical offense against God in the end? Because we proudly ignore him thinking that we don't need him on the one hand, seek to run our own lives our own way without him, or we secretly mask our pride because we want to be like others who are proud or think they should be proud. So not only do we defy God by seeking to take his place, but we can also try and appeal to him on the basis of our own strength, our own moral record, and somehow contribute to our own ways and rely on what I've done in the past or rely on my goodness or rely on something good in the past so that I can do something good now. Hands up if you've seen The Sound of Music. Oh, you, blessings on you. Hands up if you've not seen The Sound of Music. Oh, you need to get a life, you guys, right? I've seen The Sound of Music about 15,000 times, or there, about 15 or something like that. It's such a great musical. It's just, it's just a feel-good movie at the end, but it has terrible theology, right? Like most movies, right? Anything, yeah, most movies have terrible theology. This one really has desperately bad theology but it's just fun movie right it's it's a good movie and, and they constantly sing songs all the time and there's one scene where those of us who know Fraulein Maria right who is uh, an ex-nun and then there's Captain Von Trapp who's my favorite character of all time because he blows a whistle and children come to attention bang I just go that's my kind of guy right and, and they fall in love and they work out in the end that they actually love each other and so there's this scene where they're outside at uh, whatever you call that thing. What do you call that thing? A rotunda or something or other? The rotunda there. It, get, people can picture the scene. Do you remember the song that they sing? Remember something? It goes like this. Nothing comes from nothing. Nothing ever could. 
but sometime or somewhere in my youth or childhood, <laughs> I must have done something. What a crock! What a crock! Because I've done something good, now I've got something good. Therefore, I can rely on my goodness in the past to do something good now and something good will happen to me because I was good as if it's a glorified karma in the end. So I'm relying on my goodness in the past to get something good now, do you see? That's not the case. That's still relying on my own strength, on my own goodness in the end. But it's not my goodness that I rely on. That's why... That's my pride in the end. So even something as wonderful as The Sound of Music is filled with pride. But do watch the movie. <laughs> it's still good fun. <laughs> See, it's all symptomatic of our vertical offence against God. Let me show it to you a little bit more now in Romans chapter 6. I'm just drilling down on this idea that it's a vertical offence against God and how offensive it is against God. Because unless we understand the gravity, gravity of our own sin, we will never understand the wonder of the cross. Romans chapter 6. In Romans chapter 6, Paul is arguing that we no longer live under the law, but under grace. Not under law, but under grace. Look at verse 15 of Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6, verse 15. Paul writes, What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law, but under grace? By no means. He's answering the question as follows. You see, does God's grace permit us to sin? That is, because God is undeservingly generous to us and will forgive us if we turn to him, then therefore... I can keep on sinning because he's just going to keep on pouring out more grace upon me. So the more I sin, the more grace he pours out upon me. So I'm better off sinning so that he can just give me more grace. That's the logic. He said, does God's grace permit us to sin? But Paul's answer is, note, by no means. No way, in other words, Jose, right? Heck no. Or the authorized version says, God forbid. Or the J.B. Phillips version goes to say, what a ghastly thought. <laughs> it's very English, isn't it? J.B. Phillips. Why is it a ghastly thought? Why is it by no means? Why? Because, verse 16, verse 16. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves... You are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. Now, what is he saying? We are slaves to one or the other. We are slaves to righteousness or we are slaves to sin. We're going to explore this a bit more tomorrow night. But please note here that if we are not Christians, we are slaves to sin. Now, we shouldn't sin if we're slaves to righteousness. So there's no way I should be sinning if I'm a slave to righteousness. More of that tomorrow night. But if I'm not a slave to righteousness, then I'm a slave to sin. Remember, sin is my pride relying on my own strength, which is the vertical offense against God. 
but I'm a slave to sin if I'm so doing. So sin becomes my ruler. Sin becomes my master. I'm a slave to sin, and that leads to death. If you go on in Romans chapter 7, Paul describes being a slave to sin as living in the flesh. So go to chapter 7 and verse 5. Chapter 7 and verse 5 of Romans. Paul goes on to say, For while we were living in the flesh, you see that phrase, living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. Do you see that? Living in the flesh means that the sinful passions within us was aroused by the law and it's working in our members, all through our members, to bear fruit for death. Verse 6, But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. Now, what's he saying in all of this? All of this is really description about the place of the law of God. The law of God, you see, is like a good doctor. The law of God diagnoses our sinfulness. And what it diagnoses here, according to verse 5, is our sinful passions within us. It's aroused by the law. The law is not evil. The law is good because it's a good doctor that diagnoses what our sinful passions are. And when the law comes into to place, then my sinful passions are aroused and start to erupt and do these bad things. And therefore, the, the flesh describes our natural state of our hostility against God. And the Lord diagnoses the flesh. So whenever Paul uses the word flesh, it primarily refers to this, this natural hostility against God, this vertical offense against God, this, this flesh that is within us. And the law, the good law, really brings that out in us. It reveals it to us. It's like a good x-ray machine, a, a good CT scan, and a doctor that's even more brilliant than that to actually diagnose what's going on in the scan. That means the doctor is good, the machine is good, but, but not, not the cancer that it diagnoses. The cancer is the flesh. But how do I know that the cancer's there? Yes, yes, the law diagnoses it, but the law also brings it out. That's what the law does. I had a friend some years ago who was going on a train and he saw a sign that said, Don't spit. And immediately his salivary gland started working. He never thought of spitting until he saw the sign. Isn't that what the Lord does for you? Does it do it for you? Can we test you tonight? You're good Christian people, aren't you? I'm going to give you a law and you must not, not disobey the law. You ready? You must, you must not think about elephants floating across the room. I'll give you three seconds not to think about it. Okay. Who thought about elephants floating across the room? Did you think about elephants floating across the room before the rule? If you did, you really need a doctor. <laughs> Why did you think about elephants floating across the room? Yeah, I know. It was a psychological kind of thing, wasn't it? Yeah. 
No, it was a rule, right? I gave you a rule, and the moment you gave the rule, you immediately broke the rule. Why did you do that? Well, there's other rules as well. Do you know at New South Wales University, there's a sign behind toilet doors that says, don't squat. <laughs> you ever think about squatting? Apparently some do, but there's a rule, right? And so people immediately think, I'm going to try squatting now because I've never tried squatting before. That's what the law does, you see. So you go through the Ten Commandments, do not, do not, do not, and it arouses these sinful passions within you. We have these, that's why it says it's in these members, there's this term called total depravity where sin affects every member of my body. It doesn't mean that I'm pure evil, but it does mean that it affects every single thing in my body, my psyche, my mind, my thought, my word, my deed, my actions, my sight, everything sin affects. So he calls this sinful life the flesh, this natural state of our hostility against God. And he goes on to explain something of his life. And as I read these verses to you, I need to share with you in, in chapter 7, verse kind of 13 and five, actually verse 7 to the end of the chapter. It's really a, a parenthesis, a bracketed section regarding the law and its effect on Paul's life. But there are people who are wondering, who is Paul speaking about? The word I comes out a lot right in verses 14 and following. And I'm going to read it out to you. And as I read it out to you, let me help you understand that in the commentaries you will read, that people are arguing as to whether Paul is speaking about his own experience as the apostle. Or is Paul identifying as a non-Christian? Or is Paul identifying as someone else altogether? You get the options? Is Paul speaking about himself when he says, I? Or is Paul, Paul identifying as a non-Christian person before he was converted when he says the word I? Or is he identifying with someone else altogether like Adam or Israel? I'm going to read these verses out to you and then I'm going to get you to talk with one another to work out which of these options it might be. Okay, Have a look with me. Chapter 7, verse 14. Verse 14. And let me read to you these words. Paul says, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. Now, is Paul speaking as the apostle? Is he speaking as a non-Christian? Is he speaking about someone else altogether? Talk with the person next to you for a minute. What do you think? I'm giving you a literal minute.
Okay, your minute is up. Okay, let's go for a poll now. Who thinks that Paul is speaking, uh, identifying as a non-Christian here? Anybody? Not a single person. Why not? Sorry? How does he have the desire to do what is right? Well, there are Pharisees who have the desire to do what is right, don't they? They're zealous for the law in chapter 10. They delight in the law, and yet they're clearly not Christians. In Romans chapter 10, that's why. And let me ask you, okay, none of you think he's a non-Christian or identifying as non-Christian. How is he sold under sin? Wasn't a sin someone who is, where sin is the master? How is he sold under sin? Come on, you guys, you actually don't think he's identifying as non-Christian. How is it that he's sold under sin? Yeah. Yeah, thank you. So that's really helpful, isn't it? So we're all sold under sin in that we're just like Adam sold under sin in that way. I guess I'm asking from chapter 6, he says, if we are sold under sin, if sin is our master, we're not Christians. In chapter 6, you see. So if you're going to be consistent with chapter 6, you're sold under sin. And the person sold under sin is not a Christian. Isn't that right? Isn't that what chapter 6 says? Sorry, am I wrong? If you're sold under sin... Aren't you a slave to sin and sin is your master and therefore you're not a Christian? Well, James up there is nodding his head, I think is what he's... Yeah, and he's British. He's like J.B. Phillips. What a ghastly thought. Right? <laughs> Do you see what I'm getting at? Okay. Tell me why... Oh, well. Who thinks that he's identifying as, as the Apostle Paul, a, a Christian person? Yeah. I take it that's the rest of you, right? Yeah. Okay. Tell me why. Anybody, tell me why. He uses the word I. <laughs> he uses the word I. Well done. That's right. Any other reasons? But how can I, salt under sin, be a Christian, let alone the Apostle Paul as a Christian? He says, What I hate, I do. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, but the Pharisees are kind of a bit like that, aren't they? They delight in the law, but they know they're not, they, they don't actually do the law in chapter 10. Oh, you're so Christian, aren't you? you go, yeah, yes. He, verse 25 talks about Jesus saving him. Yeah, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Yeah, yeah, so he speaks about him as our Lord. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. So it seems like it's part of me. So is that the case? Is that your experience? Yeah, I wonder whether we identify with Paul because that seems to be our experience, doesn't it? And yes, I must confess, that's the first time I looked at the passage, I sat there and I would have said exactly the same thing as you. Then later on, when I preached it, I just wasn't persuaded from the text because of Romans chapter 6, because it just clearly sees that he's sold under sin. So I thought the text doesn't go that way. But then I've come back to where you're sitting, but not because of the reasons that you've given me, um, if I can put it that way. Uh, but I think you're right. We identify with it, don't we? 
So let me tell you why I think you're right because of, well, how the argument goes in Romans chapter 7. See, Romans chapter 7, verse 6. Read again, it says, But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. So he introduces the Spirit here, right? That we serve in the Spirit, because before we're sold as slaves under sin, but the way to be released from that captivity of sin is through the new way of the Spirit, the Spirit working in our lives. Now, you could go straight from chapter 7, verse 6 to chapter 8, verse 1. Because go to chapter 8, verse 1. It says, there, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. You see? So you can go straight from 7, 6 to 8, eight 1. But he has this, that's what I said before, this bracketed section, this parenthesis or parenthetic section, if I can put it that way, because what he wants to do was to um, take note that people will be thinking, wow, Paul, you're saying that you've got to go the new way of the Spirit. Does that mean that you think the law is bad? And so he spends this whole section, this bracketed section, explaining, no, the law is good. What's not good is me, not the law. You see, that's the big idea. But here's the other big point. He's saying, this is what life is like under the law, as it were, Without the Spirit. Because he doesn't mention the Spirit. He mentions it in chapter 7, verse 6 and 8, 1. But in this bracketed section, he doesn't mention the Spirit. This is what his life is like without the Spirit. When the Spirit is not at work, this is what life is like. Do you see? So, is the law sin? No. Did God's good law bring death to me? No. And so in this section in chapter 7, he explains that the problem is not the law. The problem is himself without the spirit. The problem is the flesh. This section explains what his own life under the law is like without the spirit. The key is verse 14, chapter 7, verse 14. For we, who's the we? I, the apostle Paul, and you Roman Christians, we together know that the law is spiritual, but I, the apostle Paul, am of the flesh sold under sin. You see, that's what life is like without the Spirit. I'm sold under sin. But it's still the Apostle Paul. So it's, it's a kind of hypothesis or a hypothetical situation of what life is like without the Spirit as the Apostle Paul. But this is what life without the Spirit is kind of like. Without God's Spirit, we remain irreparably impaired people. Even the good I want to do, I cannot do if I do not have the Spirit of God. It's, it's like a, a virus, and some of us are experiencing that right now. The virus has got me captive, and I just can't rid myself of the symptoms. And when the virus gets really, really bad, well, I've got these chills and the, this fever. I had a friend named uh, Joe Radkovic. A number of you will know him. He had the Bilharzia virus when he was in Kenya in the slums of Nairobi. And he said that his chills so incapacitated him that he couldn't do anything to relieve the chills. In fact, he got blankets put on him and his children, he got his children to lie on top of the blankets. He was so cold and he even got them to get a hairdryer out and blow it over him because he was just so cold. That's what the flesh is like. It's so incapacitating. I can't do anything that is right because of the flesh. It's unbearable. Sin traps me. 
in our fleshly state without the Spirit. And that's why it makes so much sense of verse 21 of chapter 7, doesn't it? 721, so I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? You see, it's a body of death in the end. Without the Spirit, I cannot do good. Without God's Spirit in my life, I can never, ever, ever please God. Let me drive this home a little more. Look at chapter 8 of Romans, verse 7. Chapter 8, verse 7. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. If you do not have the Spirit of God, you can never please God. No matter how good you are to other people. If you do not have the Spirit of God, you are not pleasing God. Even though you might be pleasing people horizontally, you're not pleasing God vertically. You are not pleasing God if you are not a Christian, in other words. My father is a moral, decent, generous, kind man. But I know he doesn't live with Jesus as number one at this point of his life. He prays to God daily. He's kind to other people. But Jesus is not number one of his life. It's evident that the Spirit is not in his life because Jesus is not number one. And so he cannot please God even though he's so pleasing to me. Do you know people like that? Would you be like that? If tonight you've heard what God is saying, he's saying to you that if his spirit is not at work in you to enable you to live with Jesus as number one of your life, you are not pleasing God and you can never please God. And God is angry with you. As he is with my father and with every soul who is kind to people horizontally, but in the end, not pleasing to God vertically, despite their actions. Do you see how sinful sin is? Please note again. That this hostility is against God ultimately. And how does God feel about that? I'm just drilling a bit further. So please come to Psalm, the Psalms. They're in the middle of the Bible. Psalms. Psalm 51. Psalm 51. 
Psalm 51. This is King David. King David was a terrific king. It's in the middle of your Bibles. If you open to the middle, you should find the Psalms. Go to number 51 or chapter 51, as it were, the big 51. Look at verse 1. King David was the greatest king of Israel. And God made precious promises to King David. But David sinned. David committed adultery as king. He committed adultery against a woman named Bathsheba and got her to fall pregnant. And he also organized the murder of Bathsheba's husband. And when he was confronted with these sins in which he sinned against Bathsheba, he sinned against Bathsheba's husband by organizing his murder. He sinned against the people that he was king over. He says these words in verse 1 when he is confronted. And he says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. And look at verse 4. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Can you see what he says there? He sinned against Bathsheba. He sinned against Uriah. He sinned against the people. It's hard to work out who he didn't sin against. And yet he has the gall to say, verse 4, against you, God, you only have I sinned. Do you see what he's saying? What makes sin so offensive is the vertical offense against God. So how does God feel? We're in the Psalms. Come to Psalm 5 at the beginning of the book of Psalms. Psalm 5, verse 4. Psalm 5, verse 4. God says, or rather the psalmist says, For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. God hates evildoers. Just to back that up, as just a few psalms later in Psalm 11... Verse 5, Psalm 11, verse 5, just saying the same thing again in slightly different ways. The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. He hates the wicked. Please note here, God hates sinners. I grew up with a saying that God hates the sin but loves the sinner. What does the Bible say? God hates the sinner in the act of sinning. We just try to, to dilute the anger, don't we? We try to dilute his judgment. We just don't want his judgment to be as bad as it is. But it is that bad because it's right, it's true, it's just. God hates sinners in their act of sinning. But note, 
his hatred, as it were, is an expression of his wrath that is not easily aroused. We saw that last night. Remember, he's slow to anger, abounding in love. The wrath of God is his steady, unrelenting, uncompromising opposition to evil. As Habakkuk says, his eyes are too pure to look upon evil. He cannot tolerate wrong. And how is his anger expressed? Well, in Habakkuk's day, God unexpectedly raised Babylon to judge his own people. It was an unbelievable act. But God's anger is directed at all human pride. Israelite pride, Babylonian pride, your pride, my pride. God's anger is coming around to all the nations and the proud will be punished in God's timing. Remember? But there's one verse we skipped in Habakkuk and it's worth coming back to. So if you can come back to Habakkuk chapter 2 and verse 4. Habakkuk 2 and verse 4. And then we're going to go back to Romans and then we're down the home straight. Habakkuk chapter 2 verse 4. This is all just an expression of what's taking place regarding God's righteous judgment on our vertical offense against God that makes it so offensive against God. Habakkuk chapter 2 verse 4. Here's the key verse in the whole book of Habakkuk. That's why I want you to look at it for yourself. Verse 4, we read this first half. It says, Behold, his, referring to the Babylonians, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. The righteous will live by his faith. I hope that's ringing bells from last night. Do you remember last night why Abraham was declared righteous? Why he was declared to have met God's standards? Because he lived by his faith. In other words, he trusted God's promise. He trusted God's promise against all the odds that he would be given a land and offspring and blessings. Here, Habakkuk is to trust God's promise regarding God's justice that will come in his appointed time. It's all about trusting God's promise. That's what righteousness is about. The righteous shall live by trusting in the promises of God. The righteous are those who will trust his promises regarding his timing to right the wrongs. So no matter what happens, no matter how bad it looks, no matter how long it takes, the righteous will go on trusting God and trusting his timing to do everything that will be right. And in history, God did bring about his judgment upon the Babylonians in his timing. You can read about it, that in the book of Daniel at some time. And as history unfolded, we climactically see what God did to fulfill his promises in the book of Romans. So come back now to Romans and we're on the total home straight. Romans, Romans chapter 1, because you see he quotes Habakkuk. I think Paul is actually having his quiet times in the book of Habakkuk when he writes Romans, which is why we spent so much time in Habakkuk. See, in Romans chapter 1 and verse 16, Romans chapter 1 and verse 16, we have the most famous verses in all of Romans. I'm sure that if you run a youth group, you've had these verses. I'm sure you've even put them to song at some point in time. right? Chapter 1, verse 16 of Romans, where it says, For I am not ashamed of 
the gospel, right? The, the momentous news of Jesus. I'm not ashamed of that gospel for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Where does that come from? Habakkuk. Habakkuk. It's all about Habakkuk. The righteousness of God, the standards of God as creator and judge is revealed in the gospel, the news of Jesus, and is revealed from faith for faith. In other words, it's from God's faithfulness to his promises for those who have faith in his promises. Do you see? That's what faith for faith means. God's faithfulness to his own promises and we just trust his promises. See, that theme is all the way through Scripture, as we saw last night. The righteous shall live by faith in the promises of God. And Paul is saying that he is like Habakkuk, only better. Because the way and all of us today uh, will ultimately experience the righteousness of God is in the, the news of Jesus, the gospel of our Lord Jesus. In Paul's day, the Greeks were like the Babylonians. They were proud. They were arrogant. They were puffed up. And the message of the gospel seemed so meek and powerless in the face of the Roman world. But he was not ashamed of the gospel because it's the very power of God. Oh, the Romans, they're powerful, but God's gospel is even more powerful. And as we trace through the argument of Romans, we see how God judges evildoers in a way that is just as unbelievable as sending the Babylonians to punish Israel. Because God punishes evildoers, how? Well, look at Romans 1.18. It's just following. Isn't it? For the wrath of God, the anger of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness, against unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. What truth? The truth, well, verse 19, for what can be known about God, the truth is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For in his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so that they are without excuse. When you, when you look at creation, you know that God has made the world. They suppress the truth that there is a God, that there is a creator. So what will God do in his wrath? Verse 24, Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, dishonoring their bodies among themselves. Or verse 26, for this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. What he's talking about here is homosexual acts in person. And then verse 28. And since they did not see fit to knowledge, uh, did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness. What is unbelievable is just as unbelievable as the Babylonians being raised up to actually punish the Israelites. The way God is punishing these people is by doing an unbelievable thing, by giving them up, not to the Babylonians, but to something far worse. To themselves, to ourselves. 
giving us up to our own enemy within, the sinful passions that are there in our bodies. He's giving us up to them. And as we do those things, they are displeasing to God. We kill ourselves in so doing. Now, in a group this size, I know there will be brothers and sisters amongst us who struggle with some of these things that God has given us up to. And I suspect there are Christians here who struggle with same-sex attraction. And if this is you, can I say to you that the same-sex attraction is not the sin itself. It becomes sin when you engage in actual homosexual sex. But if you have the attraction and say no to the attraction and constantly say no to it and live a celibate life, that you are doing the same thing as those of us who are single, who are refraining from sexual activity. And that is a wonderful thing. And you, if you are a Christian, want to please Jesus by living a celibate life, despite the fact that you have these enormous urges that you are saying no to, then you are a hero and doing wonderful things. And I want to recommend a couple of books to you. Is God Anti-Gay by Sam Albury? Or The Plausibility Problem, The Church and Same-Sex Attraction by Ed Shaw, both on our bookstore. They are wonderful books written by brothers who struggle with same-sex attraction themselves, but are wonderful brothers in the Lord. But if we give in to those temptations, then that is actually the revelation of the wrath of God. But it's not just same-sex attraction or homosexuality. It's all these other sins that are spoke, being spoken of, aren't they? They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness, gossip, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, foolish, faultless. That, that's us. And like the judgment upon Babylon, the Romans will not get away with their evil, nor will the Jew, nor will the barbarian, neither will we. We must see ourselves as evildoers as well. To think that evil is beyond us is to be proud and puffed up like the Babylonians. That's why he goes on to say in chapter 2, Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. If I point a finger at someone else, there's three fingers pointing back at me. The only reason we don't sin anymore is because of lack of opportunity. That's why. You're going to think, oh, that's, that's, that's not me. I'm so good. But that's not the case, is it? I heard the story that some time ago, there was uh, something the equivalent of a Westfields, which has no window, that had a big blackout. And guess what? When the lights came back on, all this stuff was stolen. Everywhere. Everywhere. I think, what happened there? What, was it just one person who went around everywhere and got all the stuff in one go? And, or was it that everybody kind of tilted into the stores and, and just stuff just fell into their trolleys accidentally and they just happened to end up in the car with it all? They had a moment of opportunity and lots of people stole. If the moment of opportunity fell on us, I just wonder whether we would 
be tempted. The only reason we don't sin more is because of lack of opportunity. And unless we deal with our pride, we really cannot comprehend the power of the gospel. Because we still think we can contribute to our salvation. But listen again. Chapter 3 now. Chapter 3 verse 19. Now we know that whatever the, the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. We've learned about that before, right? But now, verse 21. But now. Here is, here is something that takes our breath away, verse 21, chapter 3. The righteousness of God, that's in the gospel, right, has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. Note, it's apart from the law, the good law. Now, that sounds a bit dodgy, though, doesn't it? If you're a lawyer, you must think, what's apart from the law? That sounds like it's tucking under the carpet. It's apart from the law. No, no, no. It's been testified to all along in the law and the prophets. Remember the prophets from 1 Peter 1 who had the spirit of Christ in them, pointing to the future. It's been testified in that law, this righteousness of God. Verse 22, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Now, that word in is actually the word of, the righteousness of God through the faith of Jesus Christ. It's referring to the faithfulness of Jesus. God's righteousness is seen in how Jesus faithfully lived his life. Because Jesus never, ever sinned. Jesus always obeyed the law. Jesus never lusted in his heart. Jesus never lied. Jesus never murdered in his heart. Jesus never, ever, ever sinned. And his faithfulness is for all who believe, for all who trust in him. What Jesus did in his life is what we can trust in to provide justice somehow, real justice, true justice, justice that aligns with God's moral and legal standards as creator and judge. And this is testified to everywhere else in the Bible. And as incredible as that is, we go on to read in verse 23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. See, no matter who I am, no matter what I've done, no matter what my inner secrets are, no matter what I deserve, no matter what the just condemnation is that hangs over my head, I can be declared right before God as my judge. If I trust in the faithfulness of Jesus... To deal with my sins. Because Jesus became the propitiation. In other words, all the anger of God that should have been poured out on you and me was turned aside from us unto Jesus, even though he didn't deserve it. And even though I deserved it. It's as if God slowly stored up his wrath against David and against Babylon and against Rome and against ISIS and against drug traffickers, against human traffickers, against husbands who bashed their wives and liars and perverts. He stored up all that wrath and he vented it upon Jesus instead of you and me. 
in one terrible moment, he poured it out upon his son. And this was God's plan all along. It was the center of his plan to show his righteousness through the cross of Christ. But Jesus didn't stay dead. He rose from the dead so that we could rise up with him and have new life. See, this is what the angels long to see, the angels long to look at. This was the appointed time that Habakkuk waited for, but did not see. But Habakkuk was still among the righteous because he trusted God's promises. And not his own strength. What about you? Who do you trust in the end to deal with the flesh in our being? Do you trust your own efforts? Or do you trust God to deal with it through his death and resurrection in the death and resurrection of his son and by pouring out his spirit upon us so that we can live his way? Be warned, if you seek to justify yourself through your own acts, you will only ever face the wrath of God. Our only hope is to trust Jesus. Our only hope is to trust the faithfulness of Jesus in the cross of Christ. Can you see why the kick you group did the right thing by choosing not to affiliate with the SCM. Can you see why? If the cross is not central, then we lose everything. How can the cross be made more central in your life, in your thinking? Let's pray and let's ponder. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Please forgive us for not taking our sins seriously. We pray, Father, for those of us who yet do not live for you, that you might so work in our hearts to turn to you in repentance and faith. And for those of us who do, please help us to contemplate how the cross can become more central in our thinking and in our living. And we pray this for the sake and glory of your Son. Amen.
Thanks, Richard. Um, so now Maho and Helene uh, is going uh, come up to um, lead us in prayer. And uh, I'm gonna pray in Japanese at first, and the reading will play in English. Let's play. Shuwa, Aware Mebukaku, Nasaki Bukai Kami, Okoru no Nyosaku, Nakotoni Tomokata, Shutsu Egypto, Sanji Rokunoroku. The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abundant in love and faithfulness. Tenokami Sama. あなたがアブラハムと前田に作られた契約、また私たちと前田に作られたイエス様の血を通した新しい永遠の契約に感謝します。We praise you for the promise you gave to Abraham that he will be the father of many nations and all people and on earth will be blessed through him. Thank you for the new covenant you made through Christ by his blood that we might receive the promised eternal inheritance. この1週間のMIC character is so rich in depth and worthy of our praise. And we're thankful that at MYC this week we can have a small taste of heaven when every nation, tribe and language will gather around your throne. また、すべての学生、留学生に感謝します。言語の困難がありますが、どうか支えて、より深く神様について学ぶことができますように、また他の学生とも神様を通した国や言語を超えた良い関係を持てますように支えてください。we give thanks for all the international students who are here and please help them as they are learning the Bible in English and help us to love one another as part of a whole body of Christ despite our difference. In Jesus' name, Amen.